0: Hello, hello, Kristen here. Just wanted to let you know that this episode was recorded before the podcast name change. If you hear any old terminology, that's why. Thank you for listening. Hello, hello, notable women. I am so excited to be back with you again today in this episode of the Notable Woman podcast. Today, my guest is Julie Morgan Lender, one of my faves. Do you remember her? From Episode 2, Living with a Chronic Illness, today she is back to talk about her book that she just published, The Things We Don't Say, an anthology of chronic illness truths. You can get the book, find out more at chronicillnesstruths.com. But for now, grab a water, grab a tea, grab a coffee, grab your wine, whatever time of day it is, whatever you want or need to enjoy this very, very, very excellent episode. I find it particularly fabulous if you have an idea or a dream, something that you know that you want to bring into the world, but you're not quite sure how. I think that Julie's story will inspire you. Let's dive in. Hello, hello, notable women. I am so excited for yet another wonderful day in a pandemic, and the wonderful, wonderful opportunity to talk to one of my original guests, one of my first three guests on this podcast, the amazing Julie Morgan Lender. Now, Let's talk a little bit about who Julie is, if you don't remember her from, I believe it's episode number two. So Julie Morgan Lender is a friend, a daughter, an aunt, a crocheter, a reader, and creator of this anthology, which is what we're going to talk about today, and so much more, despite being unable to work full-time. She enjoys walking in the sunshine, petting dogs, and spending time with awesome people, right? Right? Like us. And as she volunteers for her chronic pain support group and is on the board of directors of the Bisexual Resource Center. Now, the book that we're talking about today is The Things We Don't Say, an anthology of chronic illness truths. Now, I'm pretty sure Julie's been working on this since I've known her, since I've known her, which has been many, many years now. So I'm so excited to have you on the show today, Julie, to talk about this amazing book. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me here. Okay. So tell us about the book. What is it about? So, it's an anthology, which is a collection of different stories, and it's all nonfiction. so everything in here is true. And I collected stories from different authors. So, it's 50 personal essays by 42 different authors, because a few are in here uh, multiple times. And we talk about just the reality of life with chronic illness, and that's so different for everybody. So, the stories all have different tones and different focuses which is what I think makes it so easily applicable to such a wide audience, because there is no one chronic illness experience. There are many and I wanted to re- represent that the best that I could. And I feel like this book does a good job of reaching out to people. So I feel like everybody can identify with some aspects of the book.
0: That's awesome. And when I first interviewed you, you were really the first person that I met that was so honest and open about having a chronic illness and being willing and able and wanting to talk about it, which is why I had you on the podcast. And you were such a great resource for helping me understand and I think helping my listeners understand. What is it like living with a chronic illness? And your episode has always been one of my most downloaded episodes because it comes up in search results a lot because people, particularly I think people who are newly diagnosed with a chronic illness are really searching for support. And so I think your book can do very much some of the same. So how did you go about finding the anthology contributors?
1: I think when I was last on this show, I was in the process of finding the contributors probably. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a long process. I posted on social media. I posted on Craigslist, which was frankly, a bit of a disaster. But I just kept reaching out. I told everybody I knew. Um, I went to a trade show uh, for people with disabilities, and I was just handing out cards to anybody who expressed the tiniest bit of interest. Um, One of the contributors I met at my knitting group, you know, it was just about talking about it constantly and asking everybody who I met who had any interest to submit. Um, Eventually, a couple of writing websites picked up on it, and they had sections that said if you're looking for places to submit your writing consider these and mine was listed and that helped a lot so it took a long time (laughs) um i my goal was to collect 100 with the idea that i'd use about half of them but it took close to a year to get the first 75 and then very quickly it snowballed and i got another 75 really fast before i was even able to shut it down so i ended up with 150 which was a lot to narrow down but it was great to see so much enthusiasm and excitement
0: that's awesome I can't believe 150. And isn't that, that's kind of how all projects kind of work, right? Which is you're, you're pushing the boulder up the hill for so long. And then there's this magical moment where the momentum just carries it forward. So I'm so glad 150. That's awesome. So many submissions. Now I'm sure it was super challenging, but how did you decide which ones you were going to include?
1: That was really hard. (laughs) I struggled with that a lot. And I, Mostly struggled with the sense of responsibility and a lot of self doubt because here, who was I to make this decision on what to include? And it took a while for me to accept, well, I'm the editor. That's who I am. I get to craft this based on my vision. And people would ask if they could submit poetry. And I said, no, because I'm not good with poetry. I wouldn't know how to choose poetry. I love it. I have nothing against it, but I had to work with what. I felt comfortable and familiar with. So a lot of it was gut instinct. I did have a volunteer who also read all of them, which was really interesting because there would be one that I didn't find especially um, intriguing or provoking. And she would say, wow, this really spoke to me. And so, okay she has a different chronic illness experience than i do so i would consider that and vice versa where she would say well this is totally unrelatable and i would say no no i've experienced this exact thing so i really had to keep an open mind and then i had to also try and get as much diversity as possible that was very important to me from the start And so it was very hard near the end to narrow down, there might be two that I really wanted to include, but they were both on the same topic about the same illness. And I just felt like there was more need for variety. And I was trying to put, I put the quality first, but at the same time, I also wanted to make sure there was a range of ages and ethnicities and genders and illnesses and disability levels and all of these things to make sure that everyone felt represented, which obviously you can't represent everybody in one book, but I wanted to do the best that I could. So I had a list of uh, the criteria. I had a list from the start of the different topics that I wanted to hit on certain aspects of treatment at hospitals or relationships with family members and those kinds of things and I just made sure to hit on all of those whenever possible.
0: I was gonna ask if you had a list because I would need to have a list. I would need to have you know um, and I do this when I host my summits and things like that because it's really easy if you're once you get out of like 10, 15, 20, you start working at like 30, 40, 50, whatever. It's so easy to start to double up on you know anything topic, type of person, like as a white woman, I typically attract other white women. So I often have to be like, hello, not white women. Come over here and talk to me and be on my summit. So I have to really keep track of it so that I don't end up with something that isn't reflective of a uh, level of diversity. So I usually just do like a table. I don't even, you know, I haven't done anything as complicated. as This is pretty complicated. I'd probably go to a spreadsheet. So when you first got... This group of folks together so now they're going to be published in, in this anthology uh, what what was sort of the communication about like oh do you have a launch plan so that they could all share the book um this part i just am always interested in
1: <laughs> personally well yeah so i always have spreadsheets um always for everything so that really helped because this is a very complicated process so i had a lot outlined, but there's a lot of unpredictability with chronic illness. So from the very first day, I was very clear with everybody, this is going to take as long as it takes, and I don't have deadlines. And every time I estimate a deadline, I was always really wrong. I was absolutely certain I was gonna publish in 2018. And I recently came across an email with somebody where I was talking about, oh, I'm going to publish this year. And that didn't happen, but that was okay, because 2019 would be the year. And that didn't happen. So it was June of 2020, and people were very understanding. And so with the authors, it was a lot of um, a mix of deadlines and we'll say a, a looseness around deadlines. So some were very specific where I would say, okay, you'll be hearing from me with the contract. Please return it within two weeks. And then I would follow up. And people would respond and say, I'm in the hospital, I can't deal with this. And I'd say, fine, no problems, I get it. So that flexibility went both ways. And I definitely, when they were pushing back, they couldn't review their story to proofread in a certain time period, that was fine. But they also accepted the fact that I didn't know when this would be published. I didn't know when we would be publicizing it. But I did share that information up front and say, you know, here's some things. Start thinking now. What friends and family do you want to talk to about this? You know, what social media channels might you want to share on? And some people wrote under a pseudonym and didn't want to share with anybody they knew. And that Mm -hmm. was fine. Others aren't on social media. So there was a wide variety. And, you know, you just, you work with what you've got. So that was all totally fine. And I have appreciated from the start everyone's understanding as I keep pushing deadlines and changing things. Um, There's been a very loyal, patient audience this whole time. It took six years to publish. And I, in some ways, feel like it should have been done sooner, but I feel like should doesn't really mean anything. And you have to work with what you've got. And I'm just glad I finished it at all. (laughs) It's amazing. It's a huge
0: feat to publish a book, especially by yourself, especially as a person who has a chronic illness. So my next question for you is, I guess I'm going to, there's sort of two parts of this for me, which is one that when I talked to you before and and the experience that I've had from doing your interview and having this as a part of the notable woman body of work, as I like to say, is that there is this huge need for people with chronic illness to talk about it and talk with other people. And, and so I imagine that your book has created a lot of conversation because of that, but then there is this new, totally weird, totally unexpected thing, which is that we have this pandemic with an illness that causes a lot of chronic illness for folks that have uh, either you know long haulers or even you know again, it's very early in the in the pandemic for those listening. Perhaps after this is recorded, we're recording in August of 2020, so only a few months now. So have you seen any any effect from that, that the fact that there's an illness that's creating more chronic illness in the United States or has that really not hit yet? So two-parter. One is what's been the effect from your book? Like, What have you heard? Uh, what's been the feedback? And then have you heard any feedback around COVID-19 and chronic illness?
1: Okay, well, let's start with the first part. I'm getting a lot of great feedback about the book. A lot of people have reached out and said, This is the first time they've heard somebody write about or seen somebody write about their particular chronic illness or discuss it so openly. Yesterday I was speaking with a friend who actually said, oh, wait, 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 I have to tell you, and picked up the book and quoted a paragraph and said, I never even realized how much I felt this way until I read it, and this has been life-changing. So it really means a lot to know that it's reaching people. Even one of the authors said they'd never written about their illness before, which It's something I take for granted because I started blogging anonymously about my chronic illness uh, about nine years ago. So at the beginning, I found it very difficult. And over time, I really got used to opening up. And I don't know that I could be so open now if I hadn't gone through that process. And writing anonymously gave me that shield that allowed me to feel like I could say anything in a way that I wouldn't have if it was under my own name. So Mm -hmm. now under my own name, I do feel more comfortable speaking about all of these aspects. And what especially struck me was that when I blogged anonymously, the things that I thought no one would care about because you never hear them mentioned, those got the biggest reaction. And it's because they were never mentioned because they were stigmatized. So one piece of feedback I get from the book is a lot of people have been commenting on the fact that the first story is about sex. I have to explain, it's not actually about sex. It's about somebody with a chronic illness and how she manages and her frustration and her emotions and her relationship with her partner and her, her search for doctors and treatments. And it just happens to involve sex and genitals and that region, which is so stigmatized. And that's why it's never discussed. And I hadn't expected such a strong reaction to starting the book off with that. I guess I knew some people would react, but I didn't expect this much, both positive and negative. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting to me because I know it's part of that aspect of people not talking about this because it's stigmatized. And if it involves anything that involves the, the female reproductive organs or for those who are assigned female birth, that system, it just gets stigmatized that much more. And I think that's why the title fits so well, The Things We Don't Say, because Mm -hmm. we don't talk about it. So that's been the biggest reaction is just people talking about, wow, I never knew this, or I didn't know how to express this, and this allows me to express it in a new way. And I've heard from a few people who don't have chronic illness themselves who said, wow, I get it now, or this gave me a new understanding, including a couple of my doctors, which has been very interesting.
0: Wow, that is really interesting. And I could see that... The idea of uh, something that's already stigmatized just in the world and then, you know, putting it in, uh, you know, the additional context of chronic illness, which is also stigmatized. It would just multiply the effects. And that's great that, that your doctors have read your book. That's awesome. That's really a couple great. of them
1: have, yeah. I, I made sure to give them copies. The ones who I've been seeing for a long time, I have so many doctors, I don't think I could give them all copies. But um, yeah, a few of them have, we've had telehealth appointments and they'll say, Wow, well, I got your book and I've started reading it. Um, one actually just herself has had a chronic illness um, enter her life in the last couple of years, which I hadn't realized. I've been seeing her for much longer than that. And she said that it, it's really speaking to her in a way that she hadn't expected because she's new to this. Um, And that speaks to something you mentioned earlier where there, for people who are newly diagnosed, I think it's very important. It gives a sense of community, but for people who've had this for a long time because we don't talk about it because we don't reach out, you can have chronic illness for a dozen years and still need that community and still need that way of expressing yourself. So I think for People at any stage, it can be really helpful, really cathartic. I've had chronic illness for oh, close to thirty years now that I think about it, and I know it's still really helpful for me. It's great to hear.
0: And then have you have you seen or heard of any of sort of the you know the the chronic illness coming from COVID nineteen? Has any of that overlapped with with your book yet?
1: So far, most of what I'm hearing is coming from people who already have chronic illnesses who are either more concerned about getting COVID-19 because we're so aware of the possibility of getting an illness that won't go away in a Mm. way that folks who have always been healthy don't seem to be as aware of. Um, Also, because some of the chronic illness caused by COVID-19 so far seems to be related to chronic illness that already exists. Mm. So development of myalgic encephalomyelitis, also known as chronic fatigue syndrome, or um, uh, POTS, post-orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. It's amazing what I've had to learn how to pronounce. Um, And so the folks within those communities are talking about this and wondering if the numbers that we're about to see of people now getting these illnesses that have been so often ignored in terms of research and NIH funding, as well as just acknowledgement from society in general, if we're now going to see more of a push to look for treatments for these conditions. So it's up in the air, but there's a lot of conversation. I haven't seen as much conversation about people who have COVID who now have chronic illness for the first time. And I think that it's, going to take a little time before that happens, because for anybody who has chronic illness of whatever cause, it's very easy to be in denial at the beginning and hope it will go away. And I feel like our society is in a collective denial right now. This isn't really happening. It's not really as bad as as the numbers say. Even if we individuals, and I know how you and I feel about this, and we're on the same page entirely, but our society at large doesn't seem ready to acknowledge that even if we had a vaccine tomorrow, which we won't, but even if we did, that would not fix everything. It wouldn't be that we go back to, to, quote, normal the next day. And this is going to have a bigger impact. And I think folks aren't quite ready to acknowledge that. So I expect we will see more talk about the chronic illness aspect down the road. We're just not quite there yet.
0: I smiled a little bit while you were talking because I remembered when I interviewed Amy Simpkins, And this was way back at the beginning of the pandemic back in March as part of the social distancing summit. Amy is a rocket ship scientist, data, amazing human. And we talked about exponential growth and we talked about what does that mean exactly? And one of the things that she said on the podcast was, folks, it's time to wrap your head around the fact that this is going to be a while. And I, of course, knew it was going to be a while, but back in March, the idea that it was going to be a while, just blew people's minds. I remember I offered my services to my human resources department about, I think the first week after, before New York city had officially shut down, I had said, Hey, I, I, I love helping people talk about new processes and I'm familiar with every online technology basically known to man. Cause I love it. And I'd be happy to talk to anyone who's having a hard time moving online. And they said, no, we'll remember this forever. Something like, well, it's not going to be that long. And even if, uh, you know, they sort of laughed and said something like, if if we're still here in two months, then, um, you know, I'm going to eat my couch or something. And I said, <laughs> we're going to be here more than two months. You're so funny. And of course, we are. And uh, it's still going on. And uh, yes, people have a hard time wrapping your head around that, that idea alone, let alone the fact that this is, of course, very serious, but this is an illness that right now in a certain percentage of folks causes known chronic illness, like known, like we can, we can see the effects in it in the patients right now, let alone the people who are asymptomatic that then have their lungs examined and see that they have scarring or effects. And so we don't even know what that will look like in the years to come. So I certainly think that in the United States and possibly in Obviously, there are other countries that have the number of cases that we have, but that will see a, a large population of, of people with chronic illness, which I think the positive, which I always like, eh, do I want to say that? But the side of that would be that there would be much more research into that. So I think that the communities that you're a part of that are talking about that are spot on, that that is exactly what would happen if all of a sudden the percentage of folks who have this increases by large amount which it certainly seems like it's going to
1: you know i'd love to just step in and mention one other aspect because we're speaking specifically to the chronic illness side however there's also the disability side and the two aren't always um the same they're not interchangeable some people think that they are chronic illness you can have one without the other Hmm. so if you were in a car accident for example you might become disabled without having any chronic illness you can also have chronic illness and not be disabled Um, which was the case for me for a long time. So what we're seeing right now, though, is there is a big overlap. And there's been a lot of talk in the chronic illness community about the fact that a lot of us were told for many years we couldn't work from home. And Mm -hmm. I know for me my last job, that was a point of contention because I really didn't need to be in that office, but they wouldn't let me work from home. And yet suddenly there's a pandemic and everybody can work from home. And then once offices have started to open up, People are told, no, you have to come back to work now. And folks who are disabled and even those who are at higher risk for COVID symptoms are being told they must now come back. And because the office is open, they're no longer allowed to work from home, even though it worked just fine all this time. Mm -hmm. So I expect that going forward, we will see more accommodations. I know that for me, telehealth has been huge. I think that there are, A lot of times I would rather see my doctors in person, having my last rheumatological checkup and have her not physically examine me didn't seem quite right. On the other hand, a few weeks ago, I was very ill from a change in a medication dosage. And to have to drive an hour round trip to sit in an office and have a conversation where no physical exam was needed would have been ridiculous. But my insurance didn't cover telehealth, even at the start of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. They did not cover telehealth. And by the way, it was Medicare. So um, even our government's insurance wasn't quite on the ball there. But the hope is that going forward, telehealth will still be an option so that those of us who find it so difficult and draining, I mean, a healthy person might see a doctor once a year if that. For me, I just went for a stretch where I didn't see anybody in person all this time. This is a new record, but I'm still doing telehealth. I see doctors at least several times a month and on a day I see a doctor that might be the only thing I'm physically able to do. I might not even have the energy to come home and check my email. So if I can skip the physical part of going someplace, it is still draining for me and for a lot of people to do a telehealth visit. Even this podcast recording is going to wipe me out. but it is so much easier than having to go someplace. So I'm hoping that a lot of accommodations will stick around and that businesses will hopefully begin to accommodate their employees a bit better going forward.
0: I think that I I might have almost lost my head in like nodding with that. What my experience has been is that if what I was told when I was having a, a tiny human was If I ever had to do anything for the tiny human, I should tell no one that. I should always say, I'm injured. I'm, you know, something happened to me. Never say I have to take my son to the doctor or whatever, because that is considered a cardinal sin of professional women at work. And so when I've had to be at home with my son and take a meeting, I'm, you know, throwing blueberries in his mouth in hopes that no one knows that he's nearby and, uh, you know, bribing him with little Einsteins or whatever. And now when everybody's working at home, he's just right over my shoulder, you know, but everybody was doing the same thing and we were all still working and we were all still fine. And so one of the conversations I have with my husband is this whole time, it's all just been this big lie that people with chronic illness can't work from home or people with disabilities can't work from home and that I can't work when my son is hanging on my back. I can work with my son. I mean, would I prefer not to have my son hang on my back? Yes. But it's all possible, not you know, and, and I think that my biggest thing is that we've all seen the truth now, right? And so you can't gaslight us, and I mean, you can try, and certainly there are offices that are saying, oh, no, no, the office experience is unique and special. <laughs> we must have you come back, and uh, mine is, I'd like to see your ventilation protocol before anybody is going in there, and so that is something that, for me, that I think is important that we don't all just give back into the lie. You know, we all know now, we all know that it was just a big old fib that we couldn't have a meeting on Zoom is literally seven hours a day of Zoom meetings that I often do. So I'm really glad you brought that up because I know that that is something I heard from my friends with chronic illness, particularly people who got to the point where they couldn't work because their workplace did not allow them to work from home when easily they could have. So I'm glad you said that. Something that really gets my goat.
1: Yeah, it's definitely something we need to keep in mind. And like you said, it's important that we don't forget because it's going to be so tempting as soon as we're able to put this behind us to even a small extent to just try and forget it. And I think that's human nature to try and forget the bad stuff. And in this case, it's going to be really important that we don't so that we can actually learn from our experiences. So I'm really hoping that we do.
0: I hope so too. Well, everybody listening, I'm sure, is just saying, Kristen, you haven't told us the most important information, which is where do we get the book? So if
1: someone listening wanted to get this book, where would we send them? So uh, chronicillnesstruths.com will be the best place to see where it's available. Right now, it's only available on Amazon. And if you do a search for um, the things we don't say, an anthology of chronic illness truths, it will appear there. You can also search my name. One advantage of an unusual name is that uh, it's the only one. It will come up but um, I will have it available in other places in the future. The distribution center, which will make it available for libraries and bookstores is backlogged because all of the traditional publishers are also using them now during the pandemic in addition to the self-publishers. But I definitely, most people who publish a book say the best part is when it shows up on the bookstore shelves. And I get that, but for me, it's the library. The library is my happy place. It has been since I was about eight years old and I can't wait for it to be on library shelves, even if I can't physically see it there. So that will be a big goal. So anyone who can't buy it can definitely go to their library in the near future and find it there.
0: That is awesome. So chronicillnesstruths.com. I will link to that, everybody, in the show notes. Julie, thank you so much for coming back to the show. I am so excited that you published this book. And uh, I know it's going to help so many people as it already has. So thank you for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me here, Kristen.
0: And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Julie. I certainly did. I'm so proud of the work that she's doing in the world. I'm excited about the ripple effects that this book is going to create. So again, go to chronicillnesstruths.com so you can get your copy of The Things We Don't Say, an anthology of Chronic Illness Truths. If you want to continue the conversation, you can join us in the Society of You can go to the slash group. Thank you so much for listening and bye for now.